Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Hi everyone, it's Han from Full of Beans. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Matt Davis. Matt is the founder of The Flourishing Athlete, which is an incredible project which is aiming to support athletes navigate athletic diet culture by creating a positive relationship with food, body and self. In this week's episode, we talk so much about a disordered and healthy drive for athletic excellence. We talk about intuitive eating and how this can be applied to athletes who do have quite pressure training schedules and need to meet certain requirements for their nutrition. We also talk about self-compassion, identity and really looking into internalised biases so that you are able to step away from athletic diet culture and have a balanced life where you're enjoying the exercise that you're doing, thriving in your sport but also have other things in your life that give you purpose. So I just wanted to mention that we do talk about specific behaviours that may, um, some people may find triggering to listen to, such as restricted eating and disordered eating. So please, if that is something that you don't feel you can listen to right now, there's just a little bit of a warning and you can always come back to this episode. With all of that in mind, let's get on with today's episode. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I was stupidly just waiting in the waiting room thinking I was in the thing. I've never used, is it Riverside? Is that what we're yeah. using right now? I've never used it. So I just thought I would, I'd, uh-huh. I'd click headphones and I thought I was there and yeah, I wasn't. There. And I, I saw it said join. How are you doing? <laughs> no, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Good. Yeah, no, not too bad. Not too bad. Well, sort of weird week, isn't it? When there's the bank holiday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y- your time just goes weirdly, doesn't it? So. Um, and then there's another but no, I'm next all right. week. I know. I could get used to the old four-day working yeah. week. I'm a registered nutri- well, a registered associate nutritionist. All the jobs out there, well, a lot of the jobs out there, unless, I mean, you've luckily managed to work in, like, let's say, disordered eating, eating disorder clinic or whatever. That's fantastic. That's hard to do, isn't it? As an associate nutritionist, they normally want psychologists or registered dietitians. So as a nutritionist, you know, some of the requirements in order to work in these jobs, you know, it require yeah, dietitian or, or psychologist. So you, you sort of end up stuck with looking at the list of jobs that you can do and all weight management, which I personally am not as interested in yeah. um, because I don't take a, a, a pro diet standpoint. So it's tough. It's tough finding work that aligns with your values as a non-diet nutritionist, unless you set up your own business, which I'm doing and I'm loving and that's fantastic but I need some money in the meantime because I've got bills to pay and currently I'm not at a point where I'm selling anything at the moment with the flourishing athlete and I've I've sort of got plans with it in the future but until that point I've still got bills that need to go out um, and I've still got I need a job so um so part of the idea as well with the flourishing athlete is, is hopefully this shows um you know in the same way that you've used by the sounds of it the full of beans podcast has probably helped you to build a ton of contacts mm-hmm. um, and has helped you potentially get the job you've got now. I'm sure it was, you know, they looked at it and go, wow, that's amazing. That's going to help loads. 
I also want that to be the case with the flourishing athlete. And that's not me saying I don't want it to, to be my full-time thing. I absolutely do. But I also see it as a win-win in terms of hopefully yeah. helping me as a nutritionist move into an area where a lot of the jobs say you need to be a dietitian or psychologist. And I've seen a few nutritionists break away from that, you know, um, you know, like yourself, right? You've worked in the eating disorder clinic. That's amazing. But it's quite a hard thing to do as a nutritionist unless you've got something that sets you apart a bit, I think. Um, yeah. So maybe maybe the flourishing athlete will do that as well. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, I think it's awesome that what you're doing is, um, you know, you've recognised the fact that it is difficult as a nutritionist. And I don't know why that is, to be honest with you, but you are absolutely right. But I think the fact that you're doing something, you know, you're... <laughs> in a job that means that you are making a positive impact and you're not contributing to the pro diet or whatever, but you're kind of making your mm. stamp on it, which I think is amazing anyway. But I do think that you are completely right. I think if anybody came to me and they were like, you know, I want to work in this space, I would 100%. I think that the only job I got my, the only reason I got my first job was because I'd done full of beans, because like you say, it sure. sets you apart. Um, and it shows that level of commitment that you have and that level of yeah. um, dedication and like, you know, the kind of interest that you have in that area. Mm. So you've obviously mentioned the Flourishing Athlete Project. So tell us more about yeah. that. like, how did it start? What's it about? What are your aims with it? So I guess probably easiest if I give a bit of a background on me that will lead into mm -hmm. why I've developed it, I guess. Sure. Um, so I've always been sort of massively into my sport from a really young age, um, loved rugby, cricket, uh, all throughout my childhood, sort of sport mad uh, and really got involved with sport and loved it. And it's been a massive part of my life. And when I was 18, just leaving school, I was fortunate enough to play in the England under 18 um, junior touch championships. I captained England in that um in that tournament and I loved it. It was brilliant. And off the back of it, got selected for the England Men's Open Touch uh, Rugby Squad. So when I say Men's Open, that just means the England Men's Touch Rugby Squad because Touch Rugby is a unique sport where there's, I think it's one of the only sports that I'm aware of really that incorporates men and women into the same team. So we've got men's, we've got men's teams, we've got women's teams and there's mixed teams as well um, where there's, there's six on the pitch and there'll be three men and three women on the pitch at one time. So I played in the men's team um, for, well, I was in the squad from 2015 to 2018, which was fantastic. I've made some unbelievable friends and it's an amazing community, the touch rugby community. It, it's sort of one thing I think that sets touch rugby apart is the, the friendship and the community that you feel like you get from the sport. Um, but at the elite level, you know, it's a sport that is based on speed. It's a sport that's based on fitness and skill set and it's massively fitness orientated. It's a, very high intensity, fast and entertaining sport. But if no one's ever, you know, if no one's ever seen touch rugby, I, I, it's one of those sports you could watch and be immediately entertained without even knowing the, the rules that much. Yeah. But like netball, actually, I watched my partner play netball mm. the other week and I could immediately, I didn't really know, I mean, I know the rules roughly, but I don't know where all the positions are allowed to be. It's just yeah. quick, sort of end to end. It was really entertaining. And I think touch is a bit like that. Um, and that with basketball as well. You don't, basketball like too you yeah love yeah anything but yeah. it's just like boom 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 exactly really yeah exactly so um it's a bit similar to that i think in in some ways um so yeah anyway i played that for three years um and, and throughout that time got massively into fitness um you know i, I did a 
started in 2017 so throughout, throughout that three-year period started my sport and exercise science degree at Loughborough and, and that was my motivation to do that was certainly um, from the idea that I was interested in elite sport fitness how do I improve my fitness how do I optimize nutrition how do I do all of these things to make me the best athlete possible and and not just me but help others and that's what I thought my my career would go down down the route of as well so I did my sport and exercise science degree. I became into my fitness. I did my level three personal training qualification and, and fitness and sport sort of became a massive part of my identity. And I guess it was during this period where my relationship with food and my body took a, a turn for the worse. Although I didn't realise it at the point. I didn't know because I think it's very common in athletes to have the traits that I was showing and for it to not only be sort of normalized, but also applauded. Mm -hmm. Oh, you've done two workouts today. That's amazing. You're, you get some respect for that. Um, you know, and, and that's no one's fault. And I, there's no, I mean, there's no blame on putting on people, but in, in that culture, it, it's something that it can be applauded. And yeah, my relationship with food, you know, I was, I was suppressing my body weight for sure. I was conscious of, calories constantly i was starving myself throughout periods of the day i was binge eating and restrictive eating i never had a diagnosed eating disorder so i always talk about disordered eating you know i never went to a gp and said listen um because for me i guess i thought it was adding to my life because i had this idea that this style of eating was improving my athletic ability you know managing my body weight whatever um, it was only till I sort of broke out of that style of eating that I realised how how much of my energy and day was taken up by thinking about food and my body. And my body image was something I struggled with as well. And, and maybe that started before elite sport as well. You know, we've got, we've got to remember that athletes are also subject to ordinary diet culture and ordinary social pressures as they grow up, not just sort of athletic diet, diet culture and, and the struggles that athletes have but but other stuff as well that everyone faces throughout school and university and whatever um so i've always been massively obsessed with my body my appearance i've had huge drives for leanness and muscularity and they fluctuated depending on what time of the year it is and and what i've been subjected to at that at that time um but yeah so i had i had this this relationship with food and relationship with body which was harmful and not healthy but at the time, I wasn't fully aware of. In 2018, I ruptured my ACL, which sort of forced me to stop playing um, but rugby at the time, which probably in, in now I'm looking back on it was a blessing in disguise. At the time, obviously, I was fuming. I was, you know, I did it in 2018 and we had in 2019, we had the World Cup in Malaysia, which was sort of, it's the build up in touch rugby of a World Cup every four years, a bit like the Olympics. And that is the, the pinnacle that you are training towards. So it was a shame to miss out on that. And, and I'm still gutted to this day, to be fair, to have missed out on that. Um, so anyway, I ruptured my ACL. I was still massively into my fitness because I sort of built this identity around fitness and athletics. And, you know, it wasn't going to give that up. So I trained up a body lots and, and was doing what I could and was still had this relationship with exercise where I, I needed to train intensely, frequently. You know, I wouldn't go on holiday if there wasn't a gym in the comp. So that was something that was massively driven for me. And then I started my master's in, in 2020 in nutrition 
and for my research project, I sort of went into intuitive eating and looked at the effects of intuitive eating in women who have also dieted in the past. So it was, it was, um, you know, I was, I was interviewing women. I was talking about or asking them about the effects that dieting has had on them and the effects that intuitive eating or a non-diet approach has had on them. And all of the resounding effects were, all of the effects were obviously resoundingly positive, which sort of makes sense now. And I sort of was like, well, okay, well, let's have a look at this intuitive eating stuff in more detail because it was just something I was interested in at the time. So I sort of went on this, I don't like the word journey personally because it sounds a bit like there was a beginning and an end to it. But I sort of started researching more about intuitive eating, about body image. I started doing courses in it. I started reading a lot of research about it. And then I started doing a lot of my own internal work on my own body image and relationship with food and sort of transformed my body image and relationship with food i followed intuitive eating principles i did the the workbook i read the book and then also ordered the workbook the intuitive eating workbook and i thought it was brilliant i really did and i maintained my identity as an athlete and as a fitness enthusiast you know i still now play um club level athlete uh, athletic i still club level touch rugby i'm a club level athlete is what i was trying to say and cricket but w- one thing i felt about the intuitive eating model and work because it felt like it was designed for people who have dieted for health reasons in the past mm. it was like right here is this alternative model to chronic dieting or to for, for chronic dieters and the people who it is aimed at are people who have chronically dieted to lose weight for health reasons and it's shown there's an alternative way to pursue health in this weight neutral manner where we're not trying to lose weight and we are respecting our body's needs and whatever and it improved my relationship with food massively but it didn't hit me as an athlete it didn't feel like it was for me it benefited me but it wasn't for me so i was like right well this has done wonders for me how do i adapt this model which i'm a massive fan of and massively support so that it can help athletes without it being geared just towards health because a lot of athletes i don't think well, certainly wasn't my experience, don't diet because they're concerned about their health. That might come into it a little bit for athletes, but a lot of it's to do with the athletic diet culture, the the, the pressure to appear a certain way, the correlation that they have between being a certain body composition and health. So my initial sort of interest was, right, how do I adapt this intuitive eating model that I've got and that I've followed and that I'm a fan of, how do I adapt this so that it really, really resonates and meets the needs of athletes? And so that's how it all started. And that's why I thought, right, okay, I need to do this. And then I thought, okay, well, actually, I can build more into this body image. And I've done a lot of work as well on self-compassion and about healthy motivation and about taking courageous action. And I'm a massive fan of self-compassion. And it gets misunderstood. I imagine as well, if I was told that self-compassion is a positive thing when I was an athlete I'd have gone well, hang on uh, I don't want to go soft I don't want to you know where's my motivation going to come from if I don't whip myself into shape because my motivation was certainly from this negative thing of not wanting to appear as lazy or not hard working mm-hmm. and my identity was built upon this person who could endure pain this person who could who was resilient who could do things that other people couldn't do in terms of multiple workouts and pushing themselves to the limit. I viewed it as a positive thing if I could get myself being being 
in a mess on the floor after a treadmill session. That was a positive thing for me. Yeah. Um, you hear, um, I was literally with friends the other day and he was like, oh yeah, I used to push myself so hard in the gym that I'd be sick. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, am I meant to congratulate you for that? Like, that sounds like yeah. you pushed your body too hard. Yeah. Well, it's diet culture, isn't it? That's athletic diet culture. That is at the core of athletic diet culture. Congratulations. Here's some respect and some worth mm. because you've got this ability to push yourself hard, which might be needed at times for sport. I am not saying, mm. my model, by the way, does not say let's not push hard. Mm. I understand that in, to prove, in order to improve fitness, that requires some intense workouts from time to time. And I'm not oblivious to that. And I don't want to portray, the last thing I want to do is portray my views as opposite to that. Because I'm going to put athletes off. I understand that because I'd have looked at that in, you know, when I was competing at the top level or even as someone who was massively into their fitness, you know, I'd go, well, hang on, no, I love pushing myself hard. Um, it's needed as well for my sport. So I'm not oblivious to that. What, however, matters is where it comes from. Are you pushing yourself hard because you have maybe a low self-esteem and a desire to be recognised as someone who works hard and maybe you've got that respect from your teammates or coaches and they've given you a clap because you push yourself hard and it's something you need to do to maintain your identity or are you pushing yourself hard because you realize it's a, something that's required for your sport but you're not tying moral worth with your ability to push yourself hard and there is a difference and that is that difference there and we're only looking at one point here but that difference there would be the difference between a healthy pursuit for athletic excellence and a disordered pursuit for athletic excellence uh, for athletic excellence or a disordered relationship with movement or your body um, or food so what is your reason for pushing yourself hard do you have the flexibility to appreciate that when you go away on holiday you might not have to push yourself hard that might be a positive thing for not only your well-being but actually your athletic performance because you're able to take some downtime away from the sport you're allowing yourself to rest and recover which we know is a massive part of improvement you know you don't actually improve yourself whilst you're pushing yourself hard on the treadmill or, 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 you know, taking yourself close to failure. That's not when you're improving. You're improving in the rest period. And if we're overloading ourselves, you're not giving yourself the, the chance to improve. And overloading ourselves typically comes from a place of feeling a external pressure or need to push hard in order to feel sense of worth. Um, and we've just touched the surface there in terms of athletic diet culture, but that was certainly me back then. So I want I want to help athletes build. Ultimately, I want to help athletes build a positive relationship with food, with their body um, and with themselves so that they can flourish in their sport and life. And I think that sort of sentence sums it up the best mm -hmm. because I didn't have a healthy relationship with food, body and self. And yes, I perform well in my sport. But I've gone through some massive mental health struggles mm -hmm. as well as a result. I think of my relationship with food body and in particular self. So that's what the flourishing athletes about. That's what I feel like my mission that, the, the, you know, the business's mission and my mission is. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. love it. I've, I don't know whether you saw me like jotting down notes there because I was like, Oh my God, there are so many things that I want to touch on with you and cover. Um, because I think you you just knocked so many nails on the head. And I think it's a really complex um, kind of situation 
for so many reasons like my experience of this and I've said this a thousand times on the podcast so sorry to bore the listeners but uh I used to power lift um and I think power lifting for me was it just reflects everything that you've just said like the normalization of you know disordered eating and body image concerns you know I did my first competition and I was doing a weight cut and it's like mate you're not even close to winning but the normalization mm. of okay you can't possibly go up a weight category because then you definitely won't be competitive so you've got to cut weight and then that meant that all of these disordered eating patterns came in and then you know like you said you tie your identity into that like I was a power lifter like that was my life all my friends were power lifters and so your world kind of massively reduces in terms of the people that you hang out with the perspectives that you have but also because you're only with people you know my day-to-day was literally hanging out with four guys that were powerlifters that some of them were cutting to you know reduce their intake and some of them were eating so much food that honestly it put me off eating seeing them like that and but it was normalized and so I'd go home to my parents and they'd be like Hannah why are you eating like that and like that's what everyone does but because you only see that you then think that that is normal and so for the like first thing that we'll touch on from kind of what you've said, I really want to talk about the sort of athletic diet culture and that normalization of it and how you think that can change because it's it's really hard, isn't it, to, like you said, I think so much of people's identity and self-esteem when somebody is an athlete is tied into it. And whether that's from somebody that, you know, from a young age has competed in a sport and then you know naturally your identity is going to be that because that's something you've done for so long but then Mm. to kind of say you know to break out of the status quo and say actually I I don't want to do it this way when everybody else is doing it that way and you think that that's the way you've got to do it in order to improve and to be successful like Mm. I think it's such a difficult I'm kind of like going all over the place here but I think it's such a difficult thing because in order to be a successful athlete like you said, you do have to push yourself. You do have to dedicate yourself. You do have to, you know, prioritize things that maybe, you know, random Joe blogs on the street that's not an athlete wouldn't. But it's finding that balance, Mm. isn't it? And I think that is why, that I think is what you're trying to get across is how to find that balance in order to be a good athlete, but also not kind of lose yourself in the process. You're absolutely 100%. And I would say that the main thing that, that, differentiates sort of this healthy and I'm going to talk about this probably throughout the podcast I'd assume at various points the difference between this healthy drive for athletic excellence Mm -hmm. and this sort of disordered pursuit for athletic excellence and the main difference actually occasionally it is behavioral and what I mean by this is let's say we've got an athlete who is over exercising they are exercising too much to the point that it has a, a negative impact on psychological and and physiological health and well-being we might be talking about a relative energy deficiency so they are not able to consume enough calories for the amount they're expending and that could be intentional or unintentional but so some are behavioral right some are these okay we've got someone here who is exercising too much and for me sometimes i was doing three exercise sessions a day and i thought that made me amazing and they weren't all i don't want to lie they were not all sort of two hour long sessions but I did view, and they, but they were all very intense sessions, mm-hmm. and it was far too much. That was that I wasn't a professional athlete at the time. That wasn't my only job. I was also doing other things, 
I was granted the time to be able to do that through university style, uh, university lifestyle, sorry. Um, so sometimes we're looking at difference in behaviours that's going to that's going to differentiate here. But so, a lot of the time it's difference in intentions behind behaviours. And that is what makes it sneaky, which is what you were sort of, I think, alluding to there is that there's a subtle difference. Is someone, what is the motivation behind this? If someone doesn't exercise, let's say for a day, is that causing them anxiety and shame? Because that for me would indicate, you know, that's probably quite disordered. That's probably not healthy. If someone's not able to exercise for a day and is able to rationalize it, enjoy their day, get on with their day, do other things that they value. That might also be that might also be disordered, but that's far more likely to be an athletic, um, a healthy uh, pursuit for athletic excellence. So there's a lot of the time it comes down to, I think, intention, which is what makes it sneaky. Because you, it's very hard to sort of look at an athlete and put people into these categories. Occasionally, there are some obvious cues. However, a lot of the time, it's very sneaky and very subtle. And a lot of the time, I think athletes are thinking, well, this is what matters to me. This sport is the thing that matters to me the most out of anything. And you can't change my mind about that. That's true. It is my identity. It's where I get myself worth. It's where all my friends are. It's what I enjoy doing. I have to, I have to endure this pain. I have to put myself through hell in order to become the best at this sport, to get the recognition, because that's where my self-worth is tied up. And that for me is, if I could sum it up in one thing, it's the main risk factor is when we're looking at this complete reduction in self-worth just to this thing. Often you can see athletes push themselves through these workouts, but if they've got other things in their life that matter a lot to them, it doesn't end up overtaking their life right you, you go and do your workout it's really painful it hurts we appreciate that it, it hurts we appreciate that our bodies have just been pushed there then we go and meet our friends later at the park for a picnic and it's it's having that ability to conceptualize so a lot of it comes down to you know and i think the best way to visualize it is that sort of classic pie chart exercise right where if we imagine a pie chart and and we give different segments to different portions of our life that we value, whether it's sport, friendship, family, job, um, you know, whatever it could be, other hobbies. Uh, and we're looking at it. And if, if someone's identity and self-worth, if that pie chart is mainly taken up by sport, a drive to succeed, etc., we are certainly at a greater risk. We're certainly at a greater risk. And the issue is as well, is you watch a documentary, you watch a motivational video on, on Instagram or Facebook that says you've got to give up everything to be the best. You've got to do this. And, and you watch, a, you know, a, a, an elite athlete who was greatly respected who said, yeah, I didn't eat in the morning so I could get to the gym earlier. What's that famous quote um, from Arnold Schwarzenegger who says that that just sleep faster? Is that it? Just in his, in his you know. Like some people were, you know, some people sleep eight hours a day. Well, I slept four to six or whatever. And my advice to them, just sleep faster. Goodness me. Does that not sum up athletic yeah. diet culture? That is honestly astonishing. He's killing, but first so he's killing his gains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's sort of backwards from a physiological point of view. But psychologically, it's like, this is so damaging 
And I used to watch these videos in order to sort of spur me on and motivate me. Yeah. I thought it was amazing. Um, so I've been there and I've been wrapped up in all of that. But yeah, so normalised. And the worst bit is some of it is normalised from influential people within the within the sphere that the athlete is operating within. And I'm not just talking about like, yes, absolutely. But, but also coaches. So also the person yes. who's about to select you. Yeah. So the person who you need to impress to be selected for this thing that's tying up your identity in, you need to impress by doing three workouts a day because they have the, and that wasn't my experience, by the way, but they have the incorrect assumption that more is better, more intent is better, pushing yourself is that, and they don't understand the risks associated with it. So there's there's the greatest change that's going to come, which is something I really want the flourishing athlete to go in the future. And I haven't really talked about where I want the flourishing athlete to help, but in the future, I certainly want it to be this almost this campaign, this this different way of doing things where coaches and sports professionals, but also we're not just talking about sports here, I'm also talking about fitness enthusiasts, people who are just in the gym and are massively into their fitness, or not necessarily the gym, it could be anywhere, people massively into their movement and their fitness, health professionals and fitness professionals, coaches, sports professionals, we need education on this sort of social level where if that's part of your life, you have an understanding of the risks, you have an understanding of how we can cultivate environments to allow our athletes to flourish. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't even know where we started on that, but it's gone off. No, but it was, I absolutely yeah. love this. I think like this, just my brain is like, oh my God, I like, cannot believe that we're having this chat and connecting with someone that like, feels exactly the same as me and and it's so nice to be able to talk this through but I mm. completely agree with you and I'm so glad that you just mentioned there like not only you know the the influencers that you see is it no influencers yeah influencers, influencers you yeah, you got it. on social media and stuff because you know I don't know whether this is just me but sometimes I I think I've got to the point where I can be like that's on social media that's just a snapshot of their life try not to kind of take that all on board that that is you know that you know everything about them but when mm. you're then you've then got a coach in your life let's say and like you say you have to impress them and it's I think we really need to get to a point where we're adjusting sort of the um culture within that sort of environment into you know being your athletic best but not putting your life on the line for that um but then also just thinking about you know we mentioned the random joe blogs on the street as well mm. as as an athlete or somebody that dedicates a lot of their time and energy into sport mm. naturally through that process i think you do start to learn a bit about physiology a bit about nutrition like it might not yes. be that you know it all but naturally i think you you do sort of have an understanding and maybe you take an interest in it as well so you do your own reading but let's say somebody just, you know, New Year's Day wants to start at the gym because they don't have necessarily that interest or that knowledge or that ability to go and research it themselves. They do just go to the the extremes of like massively reducing their calories, doing several really intense workouts, not understanding that they need to rest. So it's actually not just like the, the athletes that are putting themselves under pressure and you know really affecting their lives but it's quote unquote let's say normal people as well that don't have that Absolutely. understanding that you know are really damaging themselves 
as well. So I think overall, it's like the whole fitness, athlete, exercise community, whatever you want to call it, it's yeah. all like, because there's so much misinformation online, everybody's just so confused. And even as somebody that, you know, I have, you know, done a lot of sport and I have a nutrition degree. Honestly, I sit there and I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I should be training. I don't know what I should be eating in order to fulfill that. And as, you know, somebody maybe from an outsider, someone would look at me and think, oh, Hannah's got quite a lot of knowledge in that area. But because you log on to social media and you see people doing X, Y, and Z, you start to then doubt yourself of like, what on earth mm. is the best thing that I should be doing? So you just do everything. Yes. And as well as that, I hate to break it to people. Optimal doesn't exist. The, mm -hmm. Even the best S&C coach out there and the best sports nutritionist and the best, we don't know everything. So we don't even know everything currently. Like we're only, research is all about putting pieces of a jigsaw together of this infinitely large jigsaw that we will never complete. Mm -hmm. And because we will never complete it and it's infinite in size, we'll never reach the point of knowing everything. There may be this supplement we haven't discovered that will boost performance for your sport. And the point I'm saying is we can always try to, to you know, and I'm not, I'm not, by the way, saying let's not try and improve. Yeah. What <laughs> I am up. saying is give up because we don't know. No, what <laughs> I am saying is that because we, because there is no such thing as optimal, there is not an optimal training plan. There is, and I, I searched for it and I think it's one sign of heading towards disordered. If you are trying to eat in a way that is optimal train in a way that is optimal, live your life in a way that is optimal. And I'm putting these all in air quotes, mm. right? Because they don't exist. The issue with it is, is you're treating yourself like a robot. You're treating yourself like someone who behaves without any external or internal, ex in external or internal influences. Mm. That's not true. That's not how life works. You cannot behave in this robotic way. Well, you can, but you're on your way to, to yeah. struggling. Let's put it that way. And I, and I did. So this op, this drive for optimal. And I actually put an Instagram post out about this, I think, the other day. I just put one simple statement. I don't remember it word for word. But it was something about how sports nutrition is a science. And it is. It's a science, right? We learn. We're putting together these jigsaw pieces of this infinitely large jigsaw that we'll never complete. But we're slowly, slowly learning more. And we can implement the information that we're learning. I'm pro that. You know, understanding that protein is important. I'm not telling athletes to go away from eating protein. Absolutely not. We need to eat protein as a sign of respecting our body's needs and recovering from the hard work that we might have just put them through. However, this treating your body as if you need to eat 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, split into five perfectly distributed things, and they have to be distributed every three and a half hours. That is robotic. You are you are negating the fact that you might have to go and do a do work or that your mum might be ill and you have to go and look after her. These external things that influence our behaviour, right? And internal things such as the way we're feeling, um, lethargy, mental health, etc. So if we treat ourselves like robots, we're ignoring the fact that eating is a behaviour. It's a complex behaviour that's influenced by many different factors, such as our values, our socialisation, like we eat for social reasons. And we're reducing eating down to this robotic thing just for performance. That's another massive risk factor, another thing that athletic diet culture plays into. So there's, yeah, I don't even know how we got onto this. I sort of feel like we're constantly going on top, on sort of down rabbit holes, which is it's a terrifying. good thing in my opinion. I, I quite enjoy <laughs> it. But but just to, just to point here that 
and I'm not trying to sort of keep plugging the flourishing athlete. I appreciate that's my thing, and it's quite new, by the way, for those listening who have no idea what I'm on about. That you know, I only started this Instagram page about a month ago, so I'm, I'm trying to get the word out there about it because I think it's massive and important. You know, I wouldn't do it if I didn't think that. But I want the, the flourishing athlete. It, it's a model. The flourishing athlete is a model. So it is not sort of just a, a business. It's a model. It's a three sort of pronged model, a three pronged model or approach where we're trying to improve relationship with food, body and self. And so it's a three part model where the first one is all to do with helping athletes to eat intuitively. And for those who a lot of people use the word eat intuitively without properly understanding what intuitive eating is, um, because it's an active approach. It's not just eating what you fancy. That is not what intuitive eating is. That is made passive. It's active. We are still wanting to promote honouring our health, honouring our body, but it's coming from a place of wanting to respect our body's needs and trusting our body's signals rather than trying to reduce our body weight or, or tightly manipulate our body composition because that requires external rules. That requires maybe calorie counting or maybe strict macronutrient rules. We are not promoting that with intuitive eating but we are still promoting using our brain's knowledge of understanding our body needs an elevated amount of protein our body needs carbohydrates before training potentially and carbohydrates after it is an integration of listening to our body's intuition but also listening to our mind's knowledge about sports nutrition rather than following these rigid external rules so that's the first uh, sort of part of the flourishing athlete is this intuitive approach to eating the second part is building a positive body image relating to our body in a way that's kind instead of obsessing and scrutinizing our body and comparing we learn how to relate to our body in a way that promotes health and sporting performance the whole flourishing athlete by the way is not about giving up on sport and performance it is the opposite it's about pro promoting sporting performance in a way that is sustainable and healthy and the third part is about relationship with self and this is actually the deep stuff this is about motivation it's about compassion it's about how we relate to ourselves it's about our because athletes have high levels of self-criticism. A lot of them do, especially ones with the disordered relationship with food and body, often very critical of themselves. So how do we, and the antidote to self-criticism is self-compassion. So how do we accept ourselves whilst also still striving? How do we build that motivation, um, which is positive and healthy and allows us to engage in behaviours in a healthy way rather than a detrimental way? So it's this three-pronged approach that I, I want, and I'm creating it um, currently in the process of creating a course that will help athletes on an individual level to do this. I don't know when it will be done. I'm focusing on the first one to start with, and I want to get that out. So at the moment, I'm focusing on the intuitive athlete, and that's the first of the three. And by the way, this model is changed. Like I did a podcast um, maybe three weeks ago, and I was saying it's a six. It's like a six-pronged thing. So it's like really evolving. I'm, I'm, I'm I love sort of, that. As I said, I'm quite early doors and I'm trying yeah. to evolve it. Um, so you were talking about how, how do we break out of it? And I'm, I'm not sort of plugging my own work and saying, well, you do the flourishing athlete because there's other ways of getting out of it. <laughs> but the point is, is, the point is, is you do the internal work and you surround yourself with people who believe in a healthier way of doing things. And because we are, a, I don't entirely believe this quote, but we are to some extent a product of environment, right? If you surround yourself with people who are constantly restricting their food, constantly talking about the amount of protein they're having at each meal, constantly talking about calories, constantly talking about these things that are intertwined with athletic diet culture. It does make it a lot harder to break away from it. Mm -hmm. And you might not be able to get away from these people because they might be your teammates. And I'm not digging these people because I was one of them. But 
if we start showing an alternative side, we start engaging in accounts or information or psychoeducation that shows us another way of doing things, that's certainly a good first step. So ideally, yeah, it would come in from this cultural and social, um, we'd come in from a cultural and social perspective, we'd try changing environments, we'd try educating fitness instructors, PTs and nutritionists and whatever. And there are people out there doing that now, which is fantastic. And that's the way we're going to get the biggest change. However, we live in a culture that is riddled with not only athletic diet culture, but outside of athletics, normal diet culture. The idea that you are a more moral person for appearing a certain way, for being leaner um, and pursuing that is something you should do and is a matter of discipline rather than anything else. Mm. We live in a in a society if you live in a westernized society you certainly live in a society that that where that is ubiquitous that is everywhere it is all consuming it's everywhere you go you only have to i literally was on instagram seconds before this podcast and i I got shown a how to lose weight thing and oh by the way i bought into this i used to be a fat loss coach so full hands up i am not for one saying i am exempt from this i have done a transformation so to speak in education But that's how we break out of it is we surround our, we, we, we do the deep work. And I know that's such a wishy-washy thing to say. And what does that actually mean? Um, and it's so easy to say, isn't it? Like, oh, you know, yeah. you, you do the work, you, you you build that self-esteem and stuff. And I'm just sat here like, yeah, no, I totally agree. And like, it's so nice if that was like as easy to do as to easy. say. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, and this is from mm. the perspective of somebody that has tracked calories, tracked macronutrients for mm. 10 years, you know, mm. um, trains regularly, you know, identities massively fixated around the way that they look, the way that they train, the way that they perform. Yeah. Intuitive eating, I think you yeah. have such a great um, explanation of it. But I think my difficulty comes in. So I, again, I'm going to do this from like a personal anecdotal experience because it's all I've got to kind of go off. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. When I have tried intuitive eating, and you're probably telling me, going to tell me, well, you're doing it wrong, Hannah, but you can tell me how to do it right because no, right. listeners all, um, maybe they have a similar thing. Mm. As somebody that has over-exercised and restricted for however many years, intuitive yep. eating was so bloody hard because you know my body I don't I don't know how to listen to my hunger signals no I'm doing this exercise I don't know what I need to eat in response to that and so intuitive eating to me unintentionally I wasn't trying to restrict I was trying to fully engage in it just became well I'm not hungry well I don't really fancy that and so I was actually then eating less my performance was then affected so how do you how do you intuitively eat, but eat yes. enough when you're just listening to yourself? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I, I could see where that was going from about a quarter of the way through. And I was like, yeah, I could tell that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so intuitive eating is not just, and this is where maybe maybe the title of intuitive eating actually makes it open to criticism before people have understood completely what it is. And I'm not saying you don't understand completely what it no. is, because if I heard I... the word intuitive eating... You'd, you'd think it's just thinking about hunger, fullness. 
based on that. I actually think we need to come up with a new term for it because intuitive eating to me has been mm. swept up by diet culture and it's just another form of dieting now. Um, you I know, think it like, can be turned into that. Yeah. yeah, I think when people hear intuitive eating, um, it's, it's, it's like keto diets for epilepsy. Every mm. single thing that is potentially manipulating the way they eat is just swept straight up by diet culture. And so when yeah. I hear intuitive eating, I don't think... Mm -hmm. I don't think no. health promotion, I think. Yeah, sure. So so to set this clear, intuitive eating is not simply listening to our body and respecting uh, honouring hunger, respecting fullness, because otherwise we'd get people who have restricted their eating for a long time, trying to do that, like you've just said, and struggling with that because your hunger and fullness signals, you might not be in tune with them because you've been ignoring them for 10 years. You've been eating to external rules for 10 years. So intuitive eating is the intersection of brain knowledge and intuition in a non-weight approach, uh, in, a, in, a, in a weight inclusive way. So we're not, the, the key bit to intuitive eating that will never change is we, you cannot practice intuitive eating whilst trying to lose weight or, or alter weight specifically. But what you can do, and, and, and the first step that I've come up with for intuitive eating, and I will have to get it up now, my, my master document where I'm planning everything on, but it is, is actually, almost mechanical eating of regular balanced meals, because that is a sign of body respect. If you know, and you have the psychoeducation, you, and you are aware that you are out of tune with your body's hunger and fullness signals, because of the, uh, and, and intuitive eating is gonna result in underfueling. The first thing that you can do is eat regular balanced meals. And, and that might feel like eating when you're not hungry and eating past fullness. It might go against that. It might go against that. Um, which is can, can be really scary. It's effectively what happens to people at, at the at the really um, clinical end if people are hospitalised with a restrictive eating disorder and weight restoration is an important part of that. They are fed, right? They are they are it's mechanical eating in order to increase body weight because at that time hunger and fullness might be so far gone. I'd argue any eating disorder at any level. Yes. The first step, you know, whether this is bulimia, binge eating disorder, anorexia, weight gain, yep. no weight gain, yep. the first thing is mechanical eating, getting those yeah, you're correct. fullness cues back. You're correct that the CBT approach to binge eating disorder, even yeah. which doesn't which doesn't require a reduction in body weight. I think it's more important for those with a reduction in body weight, body weight because we are talking about physiological health potentially mm -hmm. being at risk here, less so with people who are who are maybe binge eating, restricting, whatever, but are at a, and what is a reduction in body weight? That's all another discussion. So because there is no such thing as a normal weight, it's, it's a variation from person to person. So I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but certainly the my first, you know, intuitive eating, we've got reject the athletic diet mentality as number one, which is important. But then we've also got eat regular balanced meals. And for some people, that's going to take more work to do so we don't go straight in with and after that we're honoring hunger respecting fullness we're trying to interceptively aware but that you might have to do that for a little while to re-establish hunger and fullness signals because you're right for people who have been eating based on external rules you're not just going to be able to slip straight into understanding when you're hungry and honoring that and, and trying to eat and and in a way it, it's far more complex than that so intuitive eating is not simply jumping straight into honoring your hunger and eating when you're hungry and then stopping when you're full that's really hard to do 
Also, intuitive eating is not this, as I said earlier, it's not this passive thing. It's this active thing. It's hard. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. The results, I think, are worth it. But in terms of, in, in terms of starting with it, as I said, it's the intersection of intuition. We call it introceptive awareness, being able to be aware of your hunger, your fullness, your thirst levels, which is really important, by the way, for athletes to do. Right? We think about how important is it for athletes to be at one with their body? massively important so we're just practicing that with food but before we do that it's the intersection of that as well as the knowledge that we have and the psychoeducation we have around maybe recovery from disordered eating and ways that are gonna ways that we can eat to support health and well-being and to start with the ways that we might eat to support health and well-being may be a requirement that we eat regular meals in in quite a mechanical way you might think well that's the opposite of intuitive eating not necessarily we can do it with intuitive spirit is what some I, I don't really like that word because I don't think that aligns with me. But that's what I've seen other people say. You can you can do it in in a way where we are doing it to promote well being in a weight inclusive way. So I'm more of, more of a fan of let's say non diet methods mm-hmm. than I am specifically. It has to be jump straight in with intuition because I don't think that's always going to be helpful. We have a lot of learned beliefs around what we can, what we uh, can't eat, when we can eat, when we shouldn't eat. Um, and if we've been practicing that for a long time, yeah, I couldn't jump straight in with intuitive eating. I'd skipped, I hadn't, you know, I spent a long part of my life exercising at times fast in the morning and not eating until late in the afternoon or whatever, or, or past midday, should we say. I, when I started trying to going on this intuitive eating journey, if you want to call it that, I wasn't hungry in the morning whatsoever. I was like force feeding myself breakfast, right? Because I wasn't hungry. That doesn't sound like a positive way of putting it, but I needed I knew I needed to do that to, to eat these regular meals in order to to um, to allow myself to reestablish my hunger and fullness signal. And it took time. It doesn't come overnight. So um, I don't know if this is a good answer to your question or not, but I, I think that an important part of intuitive eating is using brain knowledge. And that might be brain knowledge of normative eating, but also sports nutrition. So intuitive eating is absolutely not about going away from sports nutrition's principles. It might be to start with at points, potentially. But, you know, for example, let me run you through the modules that I've currently got on my on the course that I'm creating. We've got an introduction one. We've got to reject the athletic diet mentality where we go into depth about athletic diet culture and how it can be harmful, how it can can result in an increased risk of disordered eating etc we've got eat regular balanced meals for some people they will have to spend a long time on that one before moving on it's there's no right and wrong way to go through this then we're looking at honoring hunger and respecting fullness after we have established our hunger and fullness signals which for people with disordered with history of disordered eating or eating disorder might take longer will take longer than than someone who hasn't had a history of that then we've got food food legalizing food neutrality and challenging the food police. Uh, so inclusion of, hit, uh, of sort of forbidden foods. Other There's loads of other bits, but I'm not going to delve into it into too much detail. Discover the satisfaction factor. That's a massive part for athletes. Eating a chicken salad at lunch and saying that's regular eating. Well, that's not. You are not getting the satisfaction from a chicken salad unless you add some carbohydrate sauce in there and understanding how balanced meals are going to satisfy us. Everyone's had that. Imagine eating a chicken salad right now with no carbohydrate source. And you can say, okay, the salad's carbohydrate in the form of fiber, but in no sort of starchy carbohydrate form. Now imagine it with a nice baked potato and a bit of butter on that baked potato. How much more satisfied are you gonna be after that one with the baked potato? It's gonna be incomparable. 
Then we're looking at sports specific nutrition. So then we're looking at into we've we've built up some skills of intuitive eating. We've got we've built the psychoeducation and awareness of what it is. How can we intertwine our sports nutrition in there? Because it's important. If it's still an important part of our life, um, being an athlete, we need to honour that. And it's doing it from a place of body respect rather than trying to shrink our bodies or trying to tightly control our bodies. Because I'll often say this: we don't try and try we don't try to tightly control our height. <laughs> but we do our size and our shape and our weight and our our size and shape and weight is massively intertwined in our genetics so is our height the issue is with size weight and shape is you can change it that's the issue you can't change your height without certain surgery i'm sure but you can change your height uh, your your shape and weight and that's problematic we need to view our shape and weight a little bit more like our height um and then the last module, which we haven't yet covered, is how and when to go away from intuitive eating in a healthy way. Because I'm not saying that if you're a weight class athlete, you can't do this. I want this to include every sport. I want to, and that's a challenge I've set myself because, and, and fitness enthusiasts as well. And that's a challenge, right? Because different sports have different needs. And so I'm telling a bodybuilder, I want, I want this to even be applicable to that. I want you to be able to develop a positive relationship with food where understanding that a key part of your sport will be gaining and losing weight. And I still, and that's a real challenge because that makes it a lot harder because I could just go for sports like touch rugby, for example, where yes, it was a sport that we might say is a, you might call it a lean sport because it's running a lot. It involves power, uh, body weight to power ratio. Body weight is a part of the sport. You know, if, if you are heavier, you are carrying more weight as you are running. So you might call it a lean sport, but it is not a body weight. It is not a um, body weight class sport. You do not have to be a certain weight to compete in touch rugby. You could be whatever weight you want to be. So um, I want to include weight class sports. I want this to be for a way of doing it for everyone. And there will be differences between sports, but I want to be inclusive and I want to have that. And I've set myself that as a benchmark which makes it a lot harder, unfortunately. But there we go. So how do we go away from intuitive eating in a healthy day? So in a healthy way. So we're looking at the risks that are associated with dieting. We are looking at the, um, we're looking at weight gain versus weight loss. I would argue that weight loss and the restriction of calories being a more harmful way of eating as opposed to weight gain. However, how do we, how do we temporarily lose weight if we need to in a healthier way with reducing risk if we must for a weight class sport. We look at the risks associated, we look at the risks of previous disordered eating or previous ED being a massively heightened risk for slipping back into old ways. So it's a lot of education around it. Um, and the key part is that we do it for momentary we do it momentarily rather than as a constant suppression of body weight. So intuitive eating, the intuitive athlete, this thing I'm working on for part one of the flourishing athlete model is a predominantly non-diet method. We are saying that trying not to tightly control our body weight and shape and size is a is a certainly more beneficial thing for our relationship with food and our body. However, at times and for certain sports and disciplines, it might be required. And there's no getting away from it. If you want to continue in that sport and discipline, it, it's a requirement, right? So we look at, we, we go into the details of how we can do that in a healthy way. Um, so there you go. I've, I've, that's, that's where I'm currently at. I've given, yeah. I know I've spoken for a long time. No, now, no. But yeah. It's awesome. And I, I'm so glad that you have 
got that nuance of because there's no getting away from some sports you will have to cut your weight you might have to gain weight like there's no getting away from that but I think one thing that I've always thought there is I look at a bodybuilder and I'm like oh god this is so disordered when you know cutting for a show or whatever but actually it's it's seeing how they are in their off season you know during the off season if they then are able to develop a balanced healthy relationship with food and not feel like they need to be at that low weight constantly that to me is like a really a good way to be because when I was a powerlifter I had to be under the weight that I needed to be all the time because I tied my self-esteem to that number so much mm. but actually if yeah. you're able to fluctuate and you're able to live a normal life when you're off season yeah. I think that is that it's balance, isn't it? And what the hell does balance even mean? But I think that is a sure. really key takeaway here is being able to kind of be flexible, not have that rigidity yeah. all the time. Yeah. And yeah, something 100%. else that I am so glad that you have included, and this is something that I am like really working through in my own recovery right now, is the satisfaction with food. Because I literally sat with my therapist the other day and I was like, yeah, I think like my relationship with food is totally fine. Like I actually um I like I really don't get excited. Like I'll walk around a, a fair or whatever and I don't really get excited by like a brownie or, you know, like a burger or something. But if someone's got, you know, going home and having like a salad or whatever, that that's what really excites me. And she was like, Yeah, obviously, because when you eat the salad, you don't have the guilt and the shame associated with it because that's safe for you and that's totally fine. Yeah. That's why you're enjoying that. But that brownie or that burger, that's going to fill you with dread at the moment because it's not something that you feel safe around. Sure. But, you know, ultimately, that's not because you're satisfied by the salad and actually enjoy that. It's just because you're not fearful of it. So I think encouraging people to find that relationship with food where they are getting satisfied from the meals and they're not fearful around what they're eating. You know, mm. I think it all, and I'm so glad that you've got the self-esteem module as well, because I, I think it all comes down to, you know, the self-esteem that you have, the way that you perceive yourself, all of that mm-hmm. is like dictated mm-hmm. around the way that you exercise, the way that you eat, the way that you see yourself. And it actually made me think um, when you were talking about sort of like the chicken and, um, chicken salad and stuff do you think that in a way that sort of ties into you know the whole like mantra of pain is weakness leaving the body and no days off and stuff like that as well as kind of putting yourself into an extreme position in terms of the workouts that you do I think often mm. there's a, a glorification of if you can eat a certain way you know yeah. if you can avoid all of those high fat calorie dense yeah. foods you are going to achieve good things whereas if you can stick to this really narrow rigid diet that apparently oh, yeah. is going to promote your health then you're actually going to do so much better what you were saying there was gold <laughs> gold and it resonated with me and the reason that, that re- because i couldn't i i saw it as such a moral virtue i was like how are all these other people eating baked potatoes and thinking that's okay and i started judging these other people negatively in comparison to myself without an understanding of what that what i was doing was massively disordered i was like i'm better than them I have this, I have this ability and oh, I could talk about this for hours on end. The self, the, the self-compassion module, it goes into, um, and I don't know what I'm going to call it yet, but let's call it the compassionate athlete for now, the module three. This is the deep work. And this is where I think people will massively change. And, and, and I, I really believe that. We're now talking about personality traits, developing flexible thinking styles. We're talking about where we get our self-esteem from, where we 
where we where we are putting our worth. Why are we in sport? Massive. Whoever reflects on that, why am I here? Why am I right now doing this? We sort of just go through and it's like we just end up doing it and we're thinking, okay, this is massively important. Where does it come from? Has it come from has it come from the fact that, and I can tell you where it came from for me, that I was a massively nervous child, that I was low in self-esteem, and that the first time I was properly felt like I was accepted and respected was when I was applauded for eating chicken and broccoli and pushing myself in three workouts a day and I found my tribe that respected me. Was that really where it came from? Was it really based in a low self-esteem as a child? Because is that a healthy drive? Or did I have a healthy level of um, sense of self as a child? And then actually, this is a positive additional in my life. Or is it the thing that's bringing me up to make me feel worthy? Massive difference. But all of a sudden, you're thinking, okay, hang on, why am I here? I think a lot of elite athletes actually have it as a negative. Um, And I'm not saying we have to give up elite uh, elite athletics or elite sport. Um, But can we we recognise... Our, can we learn about ourselves? Can we learn about our brain? Which is all what our self-compassionate stuff is doing. One of the massive parts of self-compassion is wisdom. Understanding ourselves, understanding our brain, understanding how things happen, but also understanding that nothing's our fault. It's not your fault. You didn't ask to be here. You get, you're unconscious. You get spat out and put on this planet and everyone's doing their best. Spat and that's out. liberating. Oh that's so gross. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies for the cruise. All women will be do. saying, I, th- "I wish that it was as cool oh. as being spat out." <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no disrespect to the process of childbirth. Um, <laughs> you get born. You are born. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is, you're not asked to be born. Yeah. The point I'm making is, you're not asked. I, I've maybe, uh, yeah, underestimated the no. childbirth requirement. But just we're not asked the to term be so funny. Spat out. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite, that's quite, um, that's very crude, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, we don't ask to be here, do we? we? We don't ask for the brains we've got. Our brains are a result of billions of years of evolution. Mm. We don't want to feel negative. We don't want to have lots of things. We have evolved. And that's a lot about what self-compassion, if I could advise any book, The Compassionate Mind is such an amazing book by Paul Gilbert. Goodness me, unbelievable book. I've yet to finish it all the way through, so maybe I should before I properly give a recommendation, but just insightful and a life-changing way of treating yourself. And that's basically a lot of the work I'm doing in The Compassionate Athlete is based off of his work, Paul Gilbert's work. Um, but that's the deep work, The Compassionate Athlete. How do, we, how do we slowly untie moral worth or moral value or self-worth even from our eating behaviour, our exercise behaviour, our identity as an athlete. Because it might be something that brings us joy, and that's fantastic, but it doesn't make us a better person than someone else. Mm. The only things that really make you a good person is how we treat other people. Um, and, and I think that's really important for athletes to remember. And I think a lot of athletes also understand that, but don't feel it. There's a difference between sort of understanding it in our in our what he calls our new brain mind, our, you know, our ability to think for ourselves, something that sets us apart as a species, our ability to think, have self-awareness, have a concept of self and others and ruminate and imagine and whatever. And our old brain mind is our, is our you know, more of our limbic system, our emotional system, our feelings of anxiety, whatever, our urges and our desires and our passions. Um, how, do we, how do we use our new brain mind to start 
untangling this and and in a way that's compassionate and not blaming ourselves because we didn't ask for anything and it's not our fault so um that's i think actually in some ways the most exciting module yeah because it's so it's the stuff that will really be deep and um hopefully i haven't written it yet <laughs> i'm selling something i haven't written yet um, no, it sounds like you've got, got it down I've, to a t i've planned it so I've, yeah. you know it's not like i'm making this up but um <laughs> you know I yeah. think you you literally I love this is why I love doing this podcast because I feel like I get therapy for free because I come onto this <laughs> and I talk with people that have such you know incredible insight and they're so passionate about what they're doing what you've just said there mm. has literally blown my mind like I I think that in order to be a better person, you know, this is just my bias, that I need to be lean, I need to be smaller, I need to be stronger. And what you said about not eating the baked potato, you know, I will go out for food and I will pick the healthier option. And therefore, in my mind, I think I'm the better person because I've chosen something that actually other people couldn't possibly have because they wouldn't get satisfaction from it. But in all of that, because I'm saying I'm better than you because I'm smaller, I'm better than you because I'm leaner, I'm better than you because I cannot eat the food that you're eating. Mm. I'm actually shitting on all those other people. And like you've just said, the only way to actually be a better person is to treat people better. And mm. it's just abs like it might sound so simple to you, but it's absolutely just blown my mind that all those oh, internal brilliant. biases that I have about me being a better person based on the way that I look or the way that I exercise or the way that I eat mm. are making me a better person. No, but it's not your fault as well. Right? No, because it isn't. No, so that's another thing. At all. Good. I'm, yeah. I'm not yeah, blaming good. myself in the slightest. I'm, mm. You know, it's the the environment that you grow up in. It's the yeah, impact. Sure. That, There's loads of things. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's so many different factors. But I think what not is not my fault, but my responsibility now is to take that forward yeah, sure. and say, okay, so you've recognised that, um, you know, you have these internal biases based on appearance or food or exercise or whatever. How can you now adapt that so that one, your kind of relationship with yourself can be improved because you're not putting yeah. those pressures and stresses on yourself, but also your relationship yeah. with others because you're not judging somebody for the choices that they're making. Absolutely. Uh, and and that's one thing that people get maybe wrong about the word compassion or self-compassion. They think it's sort of letting go and being weak mm -hmm. and um well, if I'm not harsh myself, I won't do things. That's often the, the thing you hear people say. One aspect of self-compassion is courageous action. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about, you know, this is not this passive thing of just treating yourself with a bit of kindness. It's way more than that. That's what you hear people saying. Yeah. But it's it's an active, much like intuitive eating. It's not this passive or gentle thing. No, gen gentleness is part of it. But it's a really active process. And... That's how I want to distinguish my course here or my uh, my model, my framework for athletes to improve their relationship with food, body and cells. It's This is positive, right? So if we take the eating, for example, if we've got a clinical eating disorder, maybe at the sort of the right at the end, and everyone talks about all of this on a spectrum, you've got clinical eating disorder where you've been diagnosed, um, you know, DSM-5 or, or whatever, ICD-10, whatever, with an eating disorder. And then you've got disordered eating where you're very at risk of eating disorder. And there's a massive crossover. There is a massive crossover because you could have disordered eating and be in more psychological pain, shall we say, mm -hmm. than someone with an eating with a diagnosed eating disorder. Not always, but there's crossover. Then we can have sort of normal eating, you know, absence of any disordered eating. 
But what I want to create is, is a positive framework. This is not, I'm not trying to bring people back to ordinary eating. We're taking them beyond that to enjoying food, to, to finding it satisfying, to, to enjoying the role that food plays in their life, to, to, up to loving their body and respecting and honouring their body and acting in a way that is, that is in alignment with their values, but also in a way that respects their body's needs and their wants and what they want out of life. And the same with the compassionate, right? We're not just trying to say people, let's stop berating ourselves. No, let's treat ourselves in a way that's going to promote well-being and promote sporting performance. And um, this is all to do with positivity. It's all to do with taking it beyond ordinary eating, an ordinary relationship with body, an ordinary relationship with self. Because I think a lot of people get stuck in this sort of, what do they call it, quasi-recovery? Yes. Have I said that right? Right, where, where, where we recover. Right. Maybe we've been maybe maybe if we take clinical eating disorder, a restrictive eating disorder where we are, we are underweight. I'm going to put that in inverted commas. Um, we, we, re we return to a normal weight because we are we are put on a plan or we are fed in uh, when we are an inpatient and then we're released and, and we can fall back and we're at risk of falling back or whatever. I, I want to this. Po I want to develop this positive thing. And I've not developed this, by the way. I don't want to make out like I'm getting credit for this because, you know, Elise Resch and, and Evelyn Triboli have, have done an incredible job. In, I think I've pronounced their names right, and I want to apologise to them personally through the Full of Beans podcast. Um, <laughs> They'll absolutely they, be listening. Because <laughs> they will be listening if, um, if I mispronounce their names. But um, they've come up with intuitive eating. I'm just trying to adapt this so that we really incorporate the needs of athletes. You know, Paul Gilbert's come up with self-compassion. Well, not come up with, sorry, but done a load of pioneering work in it. I, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to make sure how can we adapt this so it would help someone who is in my situation and is specifically driven for people who value sport and fitness and athleticism. So I'm, I'm adapting the work, the amazing work that other people have done. Um, but yeah, I want it all to be positive. Same with the body image module as well. I'm going to tell you there to stop putting yourself down. You said just so many times there. The oh, work that you are doing is absolutely incredible. And, you know, it doesn't matter if this is a unique individual idea that you've had or that you're collating lots of different information together in order to kind of provide this positivity. Like, you're doing sure. it and it, it is awesome. And oh, so, you. like, your passion for it. You know, we've just spoken for an hour and 15 minutes and I could genuinely speak to oh, you yeah. for another for four fives whatever many hours um so i think yeah what you're doing is absolutely brilliant i'm so excited to watch it all kind of come together and unfold and everything and honestly i want to do the course so please let me know when it's oh, out thank you um because oh, it sounds brilliant. awesome so yeah where can people go to find out more about flourish and athlete and you know keep up to date follow you with what you're up to yeah, so at the moment, as I said, it's, it's just an Instagram. It's just an Instagram Don't say account. Just. That's... No, well, it is because, because <laughs> it will become more. So uh, I'm saying just in, in the form of that it's going to become yeah. more. Um, you know, I, I, it's only, and there's not many posts on there. So don't but go and post... expect hundreds of posts. No, but. I just want to say this as well like oh my god I'm so enthusiastic for you like I'm so hyped about what you're doing because when I first saw your page I was like oh my god not only is this information short concise and so easy to digest but it's so aesthetically pleasing as well you don't get many pages <laughs> that's not me hang on that's not me that's my partner there oh, that's well, not me your partner all. is doing a brilliant job because honestly yeah, the, yeah. the theme the it, it's so easy to just like read it and take it in rather than oh, there good. being so much information that you're like oh I'm bit overwhelmed by that or like it looks shit so you don't want to look at it like 
10 out of 10. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that a lot. So, yeah, Instagram, just the flourishing athlete, no underscores or anything. Uh, Website will be coming. Stuff will be coming in the future. I'm I'm doing it alongside a full-time job as well, of course. So I'm I'm doing it as quick as I can whilst also respecting the need to to practice self-soothing and all that other important stuff that we'll talk about in the compassionate athlete. But, yeah, that's that's the, the plan for the future. So, so that was such a lovely conversation as well. So can I just thank you as well for having me on? Really, really enjoyed that. Great start to my day. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. But if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.